friends, because the preaching of the word is not something uh, only one of us gets to do, but it's a, a practice of our church. Proclaiming good news is one of the practices that sets us apart from um, a moose lodge. Right? Or a supper club. God bless the moose lodgers. But we actually proclaim uh, the good news, and we need, it takes a community to hear and receive and respond to that. I pray the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Father, open us up now to your great mystery of faith. Stir in us, Lord, the consolation, the disconsolation now that we need in order to repent and believe, that to respond to you by faith. May your grace be manifest here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus says, <clears throat> take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Joel, could you lower my volume a scotch? Check one, two. That's better. As long as it's not ringing when I'm talking. Thank you, buddy. Friends, uh, today, oh mercy, today. Today, Jesus, we see, doesn't avoid religious controversies. He doesn't get away. And he doesn't sit quietly in Nazareth, tweeting about the bankruptcy of the religious political complex in Israel. Or violently overthrow the powers that be with bloodshed. He doesn't get away, pontificate, or get even. Rather, Jesus walks right into the epicenter of corruption, exploitation, and abuse of power in the temple and puts his body where his mouth is. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Today we proclaim that Jesus is the place where God dwells and his death reveals all that's wrong with religion so that in his resurrection, we may find forgiveness for our corruption, freedom from our exploitation, and healing for our abuse. Today we proclaim forgiveness, freedom, and healing. It has come in Jesus. My friend Patrick came to our church one Sunday with his wife. Uh, it happened to be Easter Sunday when we were having breakfast beforehand and had baptisms. He like came into like the biggest celebration we had of the year. So I got to have breakfast with Patrick the first time I met him. And he told us his story a little bit about um, he was part of a church, a large church that um, everybody probably would recognize the name of even here, but this wasn't even in the city. He was part of a large church. He was the person being groomed to be the next like Chris Tomlin. He was going to be the rock star, right? But he was sort of in, in training. He was the junior rock star to the head rock star at this church leading worship. And so um, he, he had a Sunday off, and uh, he was telling me his story. And I was like, oh, that's really, okay. He was just telling me, like, I'm, I'm worship. I worship this church, and blah, 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 blah. So I was, we started sharing our spiritual stories, and I asked him, I said, hey, so tell me, like, when did you become a Christian? And I never forget this. He had a piece of bacon in his hand and, uh, like, orange juice, 
uh, kind of like over here. And he goes, probably two weeks ago on my kitchen floor. And he starts crying. Um, and I'm all, I mean, I'm a grown man that likes to cry. So I, Patrick and I immediately became friends. But he told me a story about leading worship uh, in this large church and uh, it was a fairly, fairly uh, traumatizing thing for him. It was a lot of pressure to be flawless and perfect. They'd have meetings after the worship service where the production assistant would tell him all the chords he played wrong or all the notes he sang wrong or all the intros or outros that were too late or too early or all the transitions that had too much silence. And as he told me this, he was laughing about it but there were tears, and I could tell, like, there's something not right. He disappeared for about six weeks, came back uh, another Sunday, came up to me after the service, again crying. And he said, thank you. And I said, what? He said, thank you for worship. I was like, what do you mean? Um, and I, I had preached that Sunday, so, like, and this happened about ten years ago. So inside... <laughs> Inside, I'm like, oh, he must have really liked my sermon. <laughs> it must have been that sermon I worked so hard on that he was uh, thankful for. He's like, no, no. He's like, uh, Jeff, Jeff, when he started worship this morning, who's our worship leader, uh, it was an echo song, like where the one side of the congregation would sing and then the other side of the congregation would echo back. And Jeff started it and no one was echoing. So we had to restart it. <laughs> And then uh, he restarted again, and the people were, uh, who were echoing were not singing the right notes. So he stopped it again. And he's like, okay, I'm going to reteach this song because we haven't done it in a while. He reteaches the song, and then Jeff starts playing, and Jeff messes it up. And like everybody sort of laughs, and we go on with the worship service. And my friend Patrick is telling me, he said, I would have been fired if I'd done that. He said, but everybody here just sort of laughed. It was okay. He said, um, I may be leaving my position as a worship leader, because I have to find a place where I can fail. My friend Chad became a youth pastor uh, at a large church in Dallas, and uh, during his first meeting with his boss, uh, his boss uh, told him to make sure that he knew his job description. This is the senior pastor. Uh, and so, uh, the boss said, hey, Chad, do you have any questions about your job description? Chad said, no, I, you know, I'm excited to be here. I really like this church. I'm excited to jump in. And the, the boss looked at him and said, good, because that will be the measure we use to decide if we keep you after this year or not. Just so you know, you're a tool in my tool belt. You have a job to do. Your job description details that job. If you can't do it, we'll find somebody who can And the end of the meeting was with the senior pastor telling Chad, keep your marriage pure and the rest of you belongs to us. Tracy was a 17-year-old girl uh, in a youth group here in town. And her um, youth pastor, we'll call him Mike, uh, used to uh, chose one weekend to use her as an example uh, during a purity retreat of what not to wear. This wasn't the first time that women in her youth group were singled out like this. Now, Tracy, uh, this will be difficult. When you write a sermon on Tuesday and you find out on Saturday kids are going to be in the service, uh, things get a little interesting. So I'm going to try to adapt some of this 
for the audience. Tracy uh, was a good Christian girl, uh, and so when she married, she was a good Christian girl, and she had, uh, actually had uh, never dated until she met her husband and got married. But this interaction and the purity culture that surrounded her youth group had a profound impact on her. She's now a mother of three. Married, but suffers terribly with uh, body issues and uh, struggles with eating disorders and feeling like having marital relations with her husband is dirty and wrong. She learned how to not sin from her church, but she never learned how to be a woman or how to embrace her body or her sexual identity or even uh, how to love herself. Uh, and now she feels like every time uh, she's with her husband, she feels dirty. Patrick and Chad and Tracy. I've got 16 more stories. How many do you have? How many, how many of us here have a story like Patrick or Chad or Tracy where we've been involved in a church, maybe we've worked at a church, we've, we've gone to church and uh, in a place where we are to be safe and taken care of and a place uh, that says love rules that we've um, been on the wrong end of power somehow. We've been hurt or abused or exploited. Can you relate? Do you have friends like this? Have you heard stories like this? Well, friends, our text from today is John chapter 2. And uh, this text is typically called the cleansing of the temple and uh, maybe the beginning of the worship wars, you could call it. Uh, but, uh, and this text tells us that Jesus, he asserts he's the true temple, yes. And yes, uh, Jesus uh, uh, is bringing some judgment upon the temple, yes. But friends, Jesus is definitively, defiantly, and decidedly dealing with the spiritual abuse of his day. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't sit at home and write about it. He doesn't take up arms and shed blood over it. But rather, Jesus walks right into the epicenter of corruption, exploitation, and abuse and puts his body where his mouth is. He's the place where God dwells. And his death actually reveals, finally, decidedly, what's wrong with how we bear power so that we might find forgiveness for our corruption, freedom from our exploitation, and healing for our abuse. Today, friends, today, we proclaim forgiveness, freedom, and healing has come in Jesus. It is here. There's, there's like six weeks of sermon to do in 15 minutes. The temple in Jesus' day wasn't just a worship center. It wasn't just the Crystal Cathedral. May it rest in peace. <laughs> it's not just the worship center. It is, um, in the Jewish imagination, the temple was set up. We're going to 
preach this summer on beginnings and endings. We're going to preach about creation and what creation is. We're going to preach about the end of the world and if it's all going to hell in the handbasket or not and how we should live in between creation and end times. We might print up some t-shirts if we can get Joel to make some end times (laughs) t-shirts. I would love to see your end times t-shirts. That'd be awesome. Uh, but, but part of what we want to talk about in creation is uh, a creation. It, the story of creation is, is uh, set up so that, so that Jews would know that God is creating. As he creates the cosmos, the universe, the world, Eden, he's creating a temple for himself to dwell in. Creation, the story of creation, isn't an apologetic against evolution, friends. It is a theological story about God creating a place to dwell, and that's our universe. So the temple, built by Jews who understand this, is set up to be a microcosm of the universe. The way the temple is ordered and structured is very similar to the way God orders and structures the cosmos in Genesis. It blows my mind. So, but that tells you the importance of the importance of the temple and the imagination for the Jew. It was the, it was the microcosm of the cosmos. It was the little universe where God would dwell specifically, particularly with his people. It was also the political center. Think Capitol Hill. It was also the economic center. Think Fort Knox. All the money in Israel was kept in the temple. Think Fort Knox plus the Mall of America. I'm not kidding plus the New York Stock Exchange, all that in one place, including the center of the universe, including Capitol Hill. But it wasn't just those two things. It was also the worship center, think Spirit of Joy. Um, uh, but, but their worship, the temple was less of like, a, let's, hey, let's get together and sing some Keith Green songs. It wasn't that. It was a slaughterhouse. Like priests were butchers. So there were animals all over the place. And I know this is kind of gross. Uh, Deacon, you'll love this. There was blood everywhere, all the time, in the temple. It was also the social center. Think like Facebook and uh, People Magazine. Like it was the place where you met and talked and hung out and, and where you caught up on the latest gossip and uh, who had the best falafel, etc. But, but by, the, by the time that Jesus had, came, had come, it had become corrupt, exploitative, and abusive. And so I want to talk about why it was exploitative and abusive and corrupt. And then I want to talk about how Jesus responds to that corruption, what he does and what he doesn't do. And then we're going to respond today in prayer for those who... Uh, and we'll talk about why here at the table, why we're susceptible to that and how we need to be uh, watch out for that. And then we're going to pray on behalf of God's people. So the temple was built by this guy named Herod. Herod was not a nice guy. Herod had started the temple 46 years before Jesus. It had taken a long time to build it. Herod wanted to be seen as the Messiah, so he did things like married a Jewish uh, granddaughter of a high priest, and he did things like rebuild the temple, and he wanted people to think he was awesome and great stuff, but he was a tyrant. He was crazy. When he died, when he died, he told his brother and his brother's wife to round up 200 Jews and to slaughter them so that people would mourn on the day he died. And that was completely in character for Herod. So this is the guy who started building the temple. Corrupt from the top down. The the people underneath uh, the king were the Sadducees and the chief priests. Friends, I don't know how to describe this because um, quickly, but essentially 
the people who, who were leading in religious leadership in Jesus' day, uh, they had bought their places of power. And, and different families vied for different positions. And it was the only thing we have that's analogous to us is, is like the mafia. There, there was power, but the power was done through coercion and economic like structuring. And they were always fighting to see who could be on top. And if, if you became weak or if you became compromised, you were dealt with. So there's gang violence between different wealthy families uh, who vied to be chief priests. And a lot of commoners, a lot of normal people, just uh, hated or resented their power and their privilege because they saw how this all worked out. That Herod and Herod's son, who was in place with Jesus' day, that they were just puppets of the Roman government. And so there was this, no difference in the logic to how the Roman government worked and how the temple and the government in Israel worked. It was like they were being, they were, remember we talked a couple weeks ago about Israel was a colony of this hegemonic evil of Rome, and the colony functioned with the same logic that Rome did. And so in Jesus' day then, uh, there, were, there were things like cattle and sheep and doves in the temple because you were authorized, you had to give sacrifices, and the doves were for poor people. This, we, this is talked about in Leviticus, uh, like chapter 12, that, that, that some people couldn't afford a cattle or a sheep, so they would by a dove instead, but here's what happened because it was the economic center. People didn't like bring doves with them, you know, on a leash, you know, from Nazareth when you came to offer sacrifices on Passover. So you would bring some money to buy the dove there, but the money you had would have Caesar's picture on it, which is idolatrous. So you couldn't use Caesar's picture money to buy something to worship to God because it was like this conflict. So you would have to exchange the money, right? You'd, so you'd buy Jewish currency, which you could only use in the temple right there, to buy the only animals available for you to buy, which were right there. Guess what happened? Well, it was an economic opportunity. The invisible hand of commerce. <laughs> I mean, basically, like, it was, a, it was like a, it was like a, what do they call it? Um, a monopoly. They had a, yeah, that's what they call it. They called it a monopoly. And they had a monopoly, and the prices soared, and so the poor people were being um, extorted to buy the cheap dove. All right? So that's the powerful. That's the powerful people and how they were uh, exploiting and abusing people there. So what does Jesus do? How does Jesus engage this? Well, notice, friends, he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't avoid it. And notice he doesn't uh, fight fire with fire. But he does a few things. He walks right into the midst of it. We're told in uh, John's gospel that he makes a whip. A lot of people like to point to whip-bearing Jesus as a justification and a rationalization for their use of violence. Friends, can I say this? I want to be so clear about this, there can be no misunderstanding. You'll have to go somewhere else to find your violent, coercive Jesus because he's not here. The whip he makes isn't Indiana Jones. The whip he makes is either of uh, threads, like cords, threads, or... Um, if you grew up in a liturgical tradition, on Palm Sunday, you had the palm branches, and then you had the real thin, like, 
tan green palms. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like think of long grass. And the, the whip he was used, he didn't whip money changers. He didn't whip the people selling the animals. Notice what John says. Making a whip out of cords, he drove all of them. Who? All of them out of the temple. Both sheep and the cattle. He was making an, a shepherd instrument to usher the cattle out. He wasn't brandishing his sidearm and pointing it at money changers' heads. Sorry if that's what you want. <laughs> that's not what we get here. Jesus is doing something, uh, not definitively, the temple, I mean, he disrupted sort of the temple sacrifices and all this stuff, maybe, I don't know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour and a half, maybe a half a day. He wasn't, he didn't like, you know, call in all the zealots he befriended through Simon and say, now let's, let's kill these people. No, he just, he did something that was symbolic. This is, this is part of uh, Israel's history. The Old Testament prophets would do symbolic things that indicated, oh, wow, it's really hitting the fan, isn't it? They would do visual things to demonstrate the jig is up. So imagine, imagine, friends, if we were to go to a rally on, uh, uh, on the mall in Washington and somebody burned an American flag. That burning the American flag wouldn't do anything to the American government, would it? But it would be symbolic, wouldn't it? It would communicate something, Right? Imagine if I were to sit down, this is not going to happen, Sharon, maybe this is a bad example, but imagine if we sat down and I, and I held up my marriage license to my wife and I tore it in half. That'd be a symbolic action, right? Like it would, it would communicate something, like maybe we should see a counselor, you know, like, something, <laughs> like something's happening here, right? So, so Jesus is turning over tables, he's ushering the cattle out, this isn't a hostile takeover, but a symbolic judgment that this entire system of exploitation and abuse is coming to an end. How is it coming to an end? Show us a sign. Show us your authority. Give us your credentials. You got a letter from the high priest you can do this? Has Caesar sent you here? Whose authority do you do this in? And Jesus says, here's, here's the authority. The authority is that this whole system, this whole logic, this whole abusive power structure is going to kill me. And my authority will be, you won't win. Because in three days I'll rise again. Jesus walks into the face, into the heart of exploitation and corruption and abuse. And he puts his body where his mouth is. So that in his resurrection we might find forgiveness for our corruption, freedom from our exploitation, and healing for our abuse. Today we proclaim, friends, forgiveness. Freedom. Can I get another one? Freedom. Boom. Healing. And the resurrection of Jesus today. So I'm, I'm thinking about this stuff uh, yesterday. I'm feeling pretty anxious. I was telling our discipleship group about this. Right before our service. I was feeling really anxious about... Um, I don't have an imagination for how to preach this in under an hour or in a way that doesn't have everybody just leave our church because <laughs> it's so depressing. Um, and I said, I just don't know what to preach. And Deacon uh, tells me yesterday at breakfast, he said, well, why don't you preach hope, Daddy? Just preach hope. People need hope. 
So that's what I'm going to do. We started the table, friends, because we believe that the cross is foolishness to a world that's perishing. The sign of, the sign is you'll kill me, is foolishness to a world that's perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So friends, uh, we are committed at this church here to learn, to learn how to inhabit power in a way that doesn't corrupt, exploit, or abuse people. Like you, most of our stories that we've heard of others and most of our experiences have not been like that. But we're committed to learning. Friends, have you been corrupted? Have you abusively held power and used it for somebody else? I have. I have. I'm not a big guy. Uh, I'm not, I don't have like uh, nunchucks and uh, throwing stars. Like I don't, uh, I'm not uh, physically violent, but I, uh, I have, I get angry. I get angry and oftentimes throw my weight around, all 181 pounds of me. I throw my weight around by being angry with people. I've done it in this church. I'm sorry. You've seen me be angry. <laughs> I've been angry at you. Wish my kids were here. I tell them this already. Yeah. <laughs> Do I get angry, Deacon? Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry. Have you been corrupted in your life? Have you used power in a way that's illegitimate, that's not foolish to the world, but makes total sense in the world, friends? There's forgiveness for you today. Here. We don't scapegoat you here. Jesus stands right in the epicenter of your corruption and he drives out all the logic that makes that power seem like good news to you and he declares his death and resurrection for you and holds it out. There's forgiveness for your corruption today. Have you been exploited? Have you been used for what you can do? Have you been a tool in somebody's tool belt? Have you been wanted for what you could do, not for who you are? Have you been given a job and abandoned? There's freedom here, friends. We don't want to use you. There's freedom here. Freedom from being exploited. Freedom from treating, being treated like a utility. There's freedom. And there's freedom because <laughs> Jesus doesn't use people. He empowers people to be with him. He called 12 people to be with him that were completely useless. <laughs> like, they weren't the best and the brightest. He's not concerned with how competent you are and how much he can get out of you. Other people are, though. Have you been abused, friends? In the church, even. Wounded by people who have power, physically wounded. Wounded in your body, wounded in your mind, emotionally. There's healing. There's healing. Here. 
This is hard because um, the table, we're, new, we're a young church, we're not perfect. But a lot of how we're organizing and structuring ourselves is to make sure that this kind of stuff, when it happens, gets dealt with well. I mean, one of the reasons we don't have somebody with the kids this morning is because the, the, the um, I don't know, the way that we sort of uh, apply and evaluate people who work with our kids is, it's like off the charts ridiculous. Am I right, Ryan? Can I get a witness? Like, there's just, it's like, there's, you know, it's not just a background check, but it's like, like we, like the, the like we really want to take care of our kids. You know, and we haven't done a good job of it. We haven't. You know, the way that we, uh, Ben and I, lead a mutual submission uh, is, is so that we're not consolidating power in the, the few, but we're giving away power in the many. And so we want to be uh, leaders who, who will say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, my fault, and be transparent about that, not because that compromises our authority, but because that's the mark of our authority. That's the sign that we have the power to proclaim forgiveness, is that we're receiving it publicly. That's the, that's the foolishness of the world. Why would you ever confess you did something wrong? You lose your legitimacy. No, you don't. You confess that the power of the cross is what you need. And so we don't know how to do that very well. <laughs> All I'm saying is, we have to learn how to do it. We're committed to learning together. So friends, where are you at today with this good news that Jesus, not just 2,000 years ago, interrupts a system of exploitation and abuse, but today is doing it in your life, in your story, in our church? Well, I thought we could pray this litany together. Oftentimes we pray individually and we might be all over the place. There may be some of, some of us who have, who have things to confess where we have used power or used our authority in a way that is a, uh, that's a corruption, that's a denial of the power of the cross. Maybe we've, maybe we've been wounded or hurt and we need to call out for healing. But there's a litany in your, in your booklet. It's adapted from a woman named Fran Platt. We've, I've changed some of it. But I thought we could pray this together as a response to this good news today. So just take a moment to be silent and still with me. Hear the good news again before we pray. Jesus is the place where God dwells. And in his death, he reveals all that's wrong with the corruption, exploitation, and abuse of worldly political, religious, economic systems. But his death reveals that so his resurrection can heal that. There's forgiveness today for you. There's freedom today for you. There's healing today for you in the person of Jesus. And then out into the world. Let's pray this together. God, our hearts are hurting for our sisters and brothers who have been victims of corruption, exploitation, and abuse. Help us to help and care for them and stand in solidarity with them. For those who are victims of sexual violence, we pray, Lord, have mercy. For those whose bodies and minds have been violated, 
Christ, have mercy. For those who have been overpowered physically or emotionally, be their refuge. For those who have felt helpless in the face of power, used and exploited by leaders in the church and out, be their stronghold and help in trouble. For those who have been snookered and hoodwinked, believed in someone only to find out they'd been swindled, be their comfort and healer. For those who have felt too damaged in body and mind to go on, be their hope. For those whom the legal system has failed, fight for them, O God. We acknowledge that violence is not the way of Jesus. We acknowledge that Jesus doesn't duck out, dodge, get away, or get even, but puts his body where his mouth is on the cross for our sins of corruption, exploitation, and abuse. We acknowledge that Jesus is our temple. His resurrection reveals God's presence among us. We acknowledge that Christ did not wield coercive power over people, but forgave, forgives, frees, and heals as we consent to his kingdom. We acknowledge that justice belongs to you, O Lord, and we can trust you for it. We acknowledge that Christ came to save the world, both victim and perpetrator, the rich and the underprivileged, the foolish and the wise, the abuser and the abused, the con artist and the conned, the violent and the wounded. God, hear our prayer. Understanding that we may not see it this side of eternity. We ask for peace, which the Spirit of God is always offering here and now. We ask for mercy, for violence to cease. We ask for rest for those traumatized, that those traumatized may sleep each night in the peace of your presence. We ask for redemption, for the perpetrators to repent and make amends. We ask for healing, for deep wounds to be mended. We ask for forgiveness, that victims may be free from seeking revenge. And perpetrators may be made new in the forgiveness of Christ. May your kingdom come on earth. May your love abound to all, redeeming all. Amen? Amen. Friends, uh, the way that we become the kind of people who learn how to be forgiven and freed and healed (laughs) is we learn how to rely on the death and resurrection in our everyday, ordinary lives. So as we prepare to come to the table, to to taste and see, to take visually, physically, Christ's death for us, Christ's the healing resurrection for us, uh, we're going to welcome each other in the peace of Christ. The peace. Right? It's part of the way we learn how to have this too. We speak peace to each other and we receive it. Yeah, peace. We got more peace than we can handle right here. So let's do that as we welcome the kids back in. Uh, Say peace. Find a kid you don't know, say peace to them too. They need to hear it. And then we'll come to the table together.